Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast from the Escape Collective, the show where we go through all the biggest developments in the cycling tech world this week and filter through it so you don't know what's worth paying attention to and what isn't. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm joined today by our full Escape Collective tech crew. Over in Sydney, Australia is our senior tech editor, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hey, James. Uh, and up in Ireland is what I presume to be still a probably pretty jet-lagged tech editor, Ronan McLaughlin. Uh, no, not jet lagged. I was I I have picked up some sort of plague or something on the way home, so uh, a little bit under the weather. But don't think I'm jet lagged anymore. Like, would you even know at this point? Uh, well, I mean, you know how little I sleep, so it's hard to tell. So you're just I, you're I, just perpetually jet lagged anyway. I, I was in Australia six years ago. I think I've been jet lagged since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you briefly got onto the right time zone for a week. Yeah, I felt I felt fantastic. I was yeah. down under, and then yeah, came back here in the fog, settling again. So, so Ronan, are, is is your sleep sort of like a like a you know how they describe a broken clock? Like it's it's it, the time's right two times a day, sort of thing. I'm not sure if it's that often. Hmm. Ooh. 24-hour clock then. <laughs> well, it's a, it's been a pretty busy Necessary week. Necessary evil is my kind of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been a pretty busy week for January for tech, and we've got a pretty healthy list of stuff to discuss today. Uh, we've got a fancy new gravel bike from Colnago, not to mention some pretty interesting details on how the company's doing and where they're focusing their efforts these days. Uh, we've got a super intriguing new road pedal system that Ronan stumbled upon. Uh, got some fancy new wheels from Campagnolo and Hunt, and surprise, surprise, Dave's got something juicy to share about tools. I don't even know what this is, so I'm very curious what he's talking about here. Uh, mm. We're also going to dig into whether road bike tire sizes may have reached their peak, which I'm anticipating to be a, could be a little spicy discussion. Uh, but first, kind of want to check in with you, Dave and Ronan, uh, as far as your, your I, I don't know, should we call them side projects at Escape Collective? Uh, Dave, what do you have next for Threaded for your, your tools newsletter? Yeah, I've got a tool, tools newsletter that should drop pretty closely to when this episode drops. And uh, yeah, I'm back on the theme of bearings. So this week it'll be all basically how to buy bearings. So how to measure them, uh, including headset bearings with the angular contacts, which can trip up people all uh, quite regularly. Uh, but yeah, how to measure them, tips for finding uh, what bearings you need, and uh, yeah, things to know. It's been a, a deep dive, and I'm, I've tried not to get too in the weeds, but there's definitely some helpful tips for all. And it's the first threaded where it's not uh, it's not going to uh, bleed your wallet dry in tools. Uh, there's oh, basically one tool purchase in there, and it's not even expensive. Wow. Wow. Okay. That, that is a bit of a departure from the norm, although... I don't usually equate Dave and not going into the weeds in the same sentence, so yeah. I will believe it. I will believe it when I see it. Uh, yeah. Ronan, what do you have on deck for your performance process? Sorry, performance process podcast. <laughs> yes, get it right, James. <laughs> uh, quite a few episodes, sort of waiting to to roll out at the moment. We have well, we have an episode with. Uh, JP Ballard from Suicide. That recording is three hours long. So we we're just discussing yesterday how we're going to break that up. Uh, potentially part of it ends up on this channel and then potentially the other part ends up in performance process. Not sure on that yet. But we've also got an episode with Ruth Edwards talking all things returning to the world tour with, with Ruth. And we've also got an episode coming with uh, Jack Aiken who some listeners might know 
was part of the Whelan team that finished second at the Daytona 24-hour over the weekend. Uh, Jack's also an avid cyclist. Uh, we had a, a, a lengthy chat a while back now, uh, and we're just looking for the right spot to, to roll that episode out. Interesting. Uh, just as a reminder, if you're not already signed up for Threaded, go ahead over to the site to do that. And Performance Process is only available to our members. So if you want to get into that, you have to sign up at escapecollective.com slash join. Uh, and another announcement before I forget, uh, if you are, have watched races in the past like Tour Flanders and Perry roubaix over the years and kind of wondered maybe what it's like to be there in person, uh, well, we have an opportunity for you to wonder no more. Uh, we still got a few spots left in our first member summit that's going to be held in Belgium that'll not only span both of those races, but you'll get to ride a whole bunch of those same roads and take part of the Perry roubaix Sportif. Uh, also get to enjoy some good food, some solid accommodations, and you actually get to hang out with some of us too, which may or may not be a draw. I'm not going to assume. (laughs) Um, If all of this sounds interesting, head over to escapecollective.com slash summit for all the details, and hopefully we'll see some of you there. I don't have to hang out with us. At last count, I believe there are only three spots left. It's Really? really almost full. Oh, okay. Well... With that, I guess we'll see what the count's at for the next show. Uh, but uh, before we get into the news, just one very quick corrections corner. We mentioned in the last Geek Warning episode that the, that Swedish airbag helmet company, Hovding, had shut down presumably due to a lack of sales, but that turns out to have been incorrect. My apologies. Uh, sales were apparently actually quite good in its native market, but uh, the company was essentially forced to shut down after Sweden's consumer agency ordered a recall and a stop sale for some reason. Uh, and there was also issues warning in neighboring in neighboring Denmark too. Uh, either way, um, that apparently was you know a little bit too much for the company to bear. So our apologies for the error. And yeah, it's still a bummer that this concept's now dead in the water because it always seemed kind of neat, if maybe a little goofy. Quick side note on that: actually, uh, myself and Charlie Dave, Dave Everett, when we were at the the Grand Depart of Tour de France in Copenhagen 2022, that must have been. It was uh, it was the first time I'd seen one of those helmets sort of in real, and they were everywhere. Uh, mm. So they, they did seem kind of popular. So who knows? Maybe it's not the end forever of that brand and that concept. We'll see. Don't really know. But either way, correction issued. Um, all right, let's get into the news here. Uh, first up on our list here, Colnago's got a new gravel bike, uh, high-end premium range. It's called the C68 Gravel. Uh, it's made in the same way as Colnago's other C-series bikes. It's fully molded and assembled in Italy from, uh, it's sort of still a lug bike, but it's, it's six separate frame sections that are all glued together. Uh, it's got, uh, geometry adjusted for gravel. It only comes in five sizes. It's quite expensive, uh, the base full build is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven and a half thousand euros, somewhere around there. Um, I, w- I went to the launch event in San Diego, California. Uh, the gravel riding there was actually surprisingly spicy. Uh, I, I was pretty impressed with the bike itself. It's actually quite good. Um, but uh, what I was far more interested in, however, was sort of just where Colnago is in general as a brand and what they're going for now. Sorry. Before we get to that, uh, you said just five sizes. That seems very limited for such a it high-end does. option. Particularly from Colnago, a brand that is known for having one in the C God series. knows how many. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's something I certainly wondered about and something that I 
wasn't entirely expecting from Colnago. I mean, essentially what they have done is they took the the total spread of the C68 road, which I believe is seven sizes, and condensed it to five. Right. So they haven't just lopped off the ends of the bell curve. They've actually just spread it out in a sense. Yeah, so I don't know. <clears throat> I unfortunately forgot to ask uh, Colnago's head of R&D, Davide Fumagalli, about this. Um, I mean, anytime any company has done this, it's basically because they feel like whatever segment they're have, you know, they have that sort of jumps between sizes that they they feel like they can get away with that because the sizing doesn't need to be added as precise for whatever sure. it is. Um, tough to say. Uh, it you know that bike does come with an integrated one piece carbon fiber cockpit, like most other high end bikes these days. It, you know they're calling it the CC01 wide because it's a uh, it's related to the CC01 that they use on the C68 road, um, except it's got a flared a flared drop, um, and that has ooh, I can't remember if it's five or seven stem lengths, one or the other, but uh, whichever cockpit you go with, they're all the same bar width. It's 40, 40 centimeters at the hoods and 46 at the drops. Um, so yeah, so the sizing is a little bit interesting. The other thing that's intriguing is that um, this is also kind of a departure for Colnago. Every one of the head tube angles on all five of those sizes is identical. It's all 70 and a half degrees head tube uh, across the board, uh, all with the same, I think it's like 73 and change millimeters of trail. So that is something I most definitely did ask Davide about. Uh, and his answer kind of surprised me and and it pretty much put an end to the, almost kind of put an end to the debate altogether um, because he was like, you know, mountain bikes have the same geometry for their front ends across the size range. So, like, you know, no one complains about that. So why is that really any different from the road? Like do larger bikes really need to handle quicker? Do smaller ones really need to handle slower? And I was kind of like, huh. Hadn't really thought about it that way, but maybe he's got a point. As as the non off roader here, does the suspension on a mountain bike setup not uh, and the rigid setup on a road not influence that at all? Not really, no? because even regardless of the rider's size and weight and stuff like that, the amount of sag in a suspension fork should be up proportionally the same. Uh, you know, you usually go for like, you know, 20, 25, 30%, depending on the type of bike. Um, so that should be the same across all sizes, theoretically. Um, so yeah, that was that was an interesting point that that's worth that, that was worth bringing up. Uh, and yeah, I didn't really have, didn't really have a counter argument for that one. So, but as I said, either way, uh, what's maybe more interesting is sort of just where Colnago's at as a brand, because... I think it's safe to say that Colnago maybe hasn't necessarily been the best as far as its corporate communications, uh, because I think in the last, what, 14, 15 years or so, basically since the advent of Team Sky, when Pinarello started sponsoring them in, back in, what, 2009, 2010, something like that, um, Pinarello has basically just on been on this absolute tear in terms of international prestige and sales and that sort of thing. And in that same time period, Colnago was pretty open with me in saying that their sales were, they were fine. Like they were financially healthy, but they were kind of flat. Um, but since they got bought by that investment group in the UAE, uh, apparently their sales have tripled. So just in the last three years from 17 million euros annually to 54, or sorry, 55 million euros annually, uh, which is pretty remarkable given that it's not like their model range has expanded a ton. 
Mm. So they have the C series of bikes, which are all made in Italy. And then they have the B series, which are made overseas, kind of like the more performance racing oriented bikes. Um, and then, you know, they have like the, the G3X, which is sort of like it's on standalone earlier gravel model. Um, but anyway, uh, what's interesting about where all those sales are coming from is that Colnago is not looking to expand its appeal to kind of like a broader, broader audience. They are doubling down on the very high-end kind of premium luxury market. Um, and it seems to be working for them. Hmm. Is that who are the? Uh, I was going to ask who who's their competition in that high end luxury market, but uh, it's it's Pinarello. It's what Specialized S works. Is that kind of the customer, or are they expanding beyond people that like? Is it new cyclists that are, are just getting into the sport? I mean, they have said that one of the biggest aspects of Colnago, one of their strongest traits, is they want to make Colnago the most desirable cycling brand. Um, and I'd say they've got a pretty good head start on that as it is right now. I mean, they're, they're going to be in their 70th year this year. Um, they've always kind of had this storied reputation. And, um, I think it's, I think it's quite admirable that even now, even after someone like Pinarello has moved all their production overseas, that Colnago still makes, they said more than half of their production is still like actually molded and manufactured in Italy in Cambiago. It's way more than um, I would have assumed. Yeah, I mean, the whole conversation was pretty was pretty eye opening. Uh, I should I should say that the, the the conversation in full is going to be in an upcoming members only geek warning episode. So, uh, if you want that whole thing, you will have to sign up. Sorry, mm. um, but uh, yeah, the whole conversation was pretty interesting in that sense. It just it, it's you know cu- coming up in like my bike shop days and stuff, and working at what was a pretty big Colnago dealer at the time. I remember there were quite a lot of bikes that they offered that were fairly attainable. Like they had, you know, certainly yeah. steel bikes, uh, but also aluminum and titanium in addition to carbon fiber. And the aluminum bikes in particular were, I mean, they weren't inexpensive at all, but, you know, you, like a pretty normal person, an average, you know, relatively well-off enthusiast cyclist could buy one without having to remortgage their house or anything. Um, and Colongo doesn't do that anymore. So, I mean, they really are going for like, I don't want to maybe describe it as like the Aston Martin crowd sort of thing, but that, that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. They're, they're not apo- they're not apologizing for having a very sharp focus on that level of the market. Hmm. It's it's the luxury goods end of, it, of the market, isn't it? And exactly. I think uh, you know, having having been in the UAE last week, unfortunately, I didn't actually get into one of the Conago. It's not Conago World, I'm, I'm confusing that with Ferrari World, but uh, it used to be Wolfie's Bike Shop and now is owned by the same group that has acquired Conago. And I think that market, um, also, you know, the the wider Asian market also is just the, that, uh, the, the demand there for that bike in the luxury end of the, the market is, from what I hear, has sort of grown massively in the, in the last few years and that's sort of where these brands are, are focused and all the brand we're about to speak about in the second Campagnolo I think moving in a, in a similar direction um, but you know anecdotally from being on the ground in the UAE last week there's a lot of Colnagos there um, mm. and I think there's going to be even more um, and I think also with with the investment coming from there into Colnago there's probably not the only new Colnago we see 
this year, I think. Um, there's already G4X has popped up on the UCI approved list last week, new, presumably a new gravel race bike. Um, and I would, yeah, I, I don't even think that'll be the last we see this year. No, I mean, it, they, they did hint that there were more models coming, uh, which isn't surprising, again, given that sort of, that level of cash infusion from that kind of, that kind of buyout from an investment firm based in the UAE. Um, so they, they are still intending to broaden their range, but not broaden their appeal exactly. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's, as I said, like, you know, having come up in a shop that sold quite a lot of Colnagos and ones that were, you know, that that people could buy. I, mean, I owned an Oval Master at, at one point. It was it was used in, in fairness, but I bought it from uh, our area rep at the time who happened to also work in our shop. Um, but, um, you know, I could afford it as, as a bike shop employee back in the day. And uh, Colnago now, as much as it kind of pains me to say that uh, that they seem to be making, have made the right decision. I mean, it, it's clearly working for them and we can look at it in terms of, you know, for people who just follow general news, I don't think it's any surprise to see that essentially the people who have or who had money a few years ago have more money now, <laughs> whereas the people who, you know, kind of are in the middle and lower end who are, have, have always been kind of struggling, uh, you know, for Colnago to kind of look past that market and, uh, you know, concentrate on the people that they know have money, it, it hurts a little bit, but it's hard to argue with their approach here. Yes, the for all the talk of the sort of slow up in the in the bike industry of late, those with the money to be purchasing a Colnago are mostly unaffected from what I hear. Whereas the rest of us who previously probably weren't in the market for a Colnago anyway, as much as we would have liked to have been, uh, we're less so in the market for a Colnago these days. Um, you know, the the people the people hurting most uh, is probably you know. Cyclists who are looking at, if I think about it in terms of pound starting, five hundred pound, thousand pound bikes. Um, yeah, it's, the, the people who had that sort of spare cash it's, recently. It's don't the have family it market, the recreational market in the bike industry yeah. that's really hurting. This this high end luxury goods market is doing just fine. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and as I as I always like to point out, um, you know, as much as this seems kind of insane from kind of a more you know person of more average income perspective. A high-end bike, if you look at it in terms of what it is relative to someone's net worth or income or something like that, you know, for someone to drop 15K on a bike, it's a lot if your household income is like, I don't know, 70, 80, $100,000 or whatever. Um, but if your annual income or your net worth is like 10 million, <laughs> you know, buying a $15,000 bike is essentially the equivalent of, you know, buying kind of like a crummy used Toyota Corolla. It's just not a big deal for them. So nothing wrong with Toyota Corollas. No, nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> but anyway, is there even is there even a crummy Corolla? They all just like work flawlessly until yeah. My I my cousin no my cousin uh, lived in Bondi of Sydney with a, an old Toyota Corolla, and uh, a homeless man moved into it thinking it had been abandoned. Um, and the one day he tried to get into it after not driving for a month and a bit, he had to have a, a stern conversation with this guy that he couldn't <laughs> live there. <laughs> the whole back seat was just like cigarettes and Oh and my God. <laughs> so uh, I'd say that was one crummy Corolla. All right, Ronan. There, okay, there, there's, your, there's your one. <laughs> I bet you still started first turn. 
Probably, <laughs> probably did. Yeah. Probably yeah. did. It yeah. probably did. Uh, anyway, uh, by the time this web, uh, by the time this podcast is live, there should be an article on EscapeCollective.com going into all the details on this C68 gravel. Uh, so head over there if you want all the details on the bike itself. Um, but uh, well. It, and uh, I, I know I already mentioned this, but there is going to be that members-only Geek Warning episode with the full interview with Colnago's uh, new CEO and their head of marketing. So make sure you check that out as well. Moving on to another iconic Italian cycling brand, uh, Campagnolo has got some new road wheels that uh, I think it's safe to say were pretty heavily hyped up on social media to the point where a lot of people were wondering if this was like a new group set or something. It's not. Mm. Uh it is their new range of aero road wheels, the Bora WTO and Bora Ultra WTO. Um, I think it's safe to say it's, I mean, Campagnolo probably wouldn't be happy with me characterizing this as such, but it seems like a kind of like an evolution of their current Bora range. Uh, they're quite a bit wider, 23 mil internal, uh, which is in keeping with, with modern trends. Uh, still uses their kind of G3 triplet spoke lacing pattern, which I think is kind of a Campagnolo trademark at this point. Uh, Campagnolo is saying they're more aero, especially at higher yaw angles, which is always good to see. They're lighter, uh, still comes in three depths, 35, 45, and 60 mil. Pretty light, not crazy, crazy light. I'm looking at just under 1,300 grams for the shallow, uh, for the shallowest Bora, Bora Ultra WTO version. You go up to like 1,400 grams, and then the regular WTOs are like another 100 grams on top of that. Definitely quite expensive. Uh, they start at about $2,800 US uh, and then go up to just over 4000 US. So mm. um, kind of continuing on with what we were just talking about with Colnago, it's pretty clear that, Col that Campagnolo is following a similar strategy in terms of the segment on the market that they're going for. Yeah. But does I like it that seem they've kept the hooks though. They have kept the hooks, indeed. They yeah. have definitely kept the hooks on yeah. the rims, which a lot of people are going to be happy to see, for sure, for sure uh, myself included. And solidly um, admit. But uh, as far as their kind of market strategy, I mean, again, they, they seem to be kind of going after the same market that Colnago is going after with that higher-end luxury, uh, you know, rather well-heeled clientele. But what I'm wondering is if it is as effective here for Campagnolo as it is for Colnago. And to be fair, I do not have sales figures from Campagnolo, but it doesn't seem like it's working quite as well from what I can tell. No, I I I I can't imagine there being too many people putting these wheels on their on their new Durace equipped Colnago. Uh, I think the the customer buying these wheels is probably still the Campagnolo group set user, and we all know that that has dwindled quite a bit uh, in the road space in recent times. So, I think it's a tough sell. I think the fulcrum equivalent of these wheels will probably sell relatively well because uh, they are a great wheel but yeah i think i think that's the problem campagnolo faces with its wheels is that the market its market share has dwindled greatly and nothing to do with the quality of its wheels just simply that people don't want to mix and match brands in group sets i, I was going to yeah trust james question about and ask uh, is it as effective or is it that they've is it less voluntarily as conago have moved into that market and that's Campagnolo now with, I don't know whether it's in terms of demand or you know supply or, or what, but the we just don't see as much of it these days, and you know pricing is uh, it's I think it's I'm pretty confident in saying if you want to spec your bike with the most expensive group set possible, you would you wouldn't really have to look beyond Campagnolo for any of the any of the parts. <laughs> um, 
is that just a vicious circle thing where you know the more the demand falls, the more the price goes up or something? I don't know, but anyway, they're they're in that space now, and I think it's unfortunate because the the poor wheels. You said they've kept the hooks. They've also kept the looks. They're as good looking they're as gorgeous ever. Yeah, <laughs> and three they're decades also, of history in that brand as well. In that name, in the Bora name. Mm, um, and I do think, like, if you think about, well, it's a long time since we've had SRAM wheels, but um, Shimano wheels are a thing you don't really see Shimano wheels cross over onto bikes with other group set manufacturers. Mm-hmm. But the Bora wheel set, I can think of a fair few bikes that have Shimano group sets and, and Bora wheels. Um, yeah. You, know, you, you definitely have a point there, not disagreeing with you that, yeah. yeah. It, it, but it's still a it's still a harder sale, and yeah. you know, with the, I think this generation of Borowiz sets, it might be a harder sell again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly does happen. Uh, I, like I, I know. Yeah, I've certainly seen and even sold over the years lots of Campagnolo wheels to to Shimano users. But uh, it is especially when you're talking a high end bike with say a Durace group set. It it is a barrier still. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that I was thinking about was. You know, Colnago can sell these C sixty eight frames for I can't remember it was like five six thousand euros or something like that. Um, I would have to imagine that the amount of development and like R and D work overall that goes into making a frame is less than developing an entire group set. Um, so oh, yeah. even even if Campagnolo is able to go after that market in some sort of reasonably similar fashion as Colnago, it just seems like they have so much more to do to get there. Than Colnago has to do, and I think it's also very worth noting um, that, despite the fact that Colnago is just this again quintessential Italian brand, uh, this new C sixty eight gravel, you know, they've made very clear that it is compatible with electronic and mechanical group sets as long as the mechanical group sets won by Campagnolo Eccar, probably you know the most uh, certainly the most Italian mechanical won by. Uh, group gravel groups that that's out there is not a spec offering from uh, from Colnago. That's got to hurt. Uh, and it kind of gets to the the one of the challenges Campagnolo has faced of late is just that OEM uh, partnerships and how many people shopping in the let's say the luxury goods end of the market are buying a frame one place and getting their group set somewhere else and their wheels somewhere else. I gotta imagine that. Most transactions in that space are just like that bike there, please. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Um, and, and while Campagno doesn't exist on those bikes, it's going to be a harder sale. Uh, away from talking about the uh, the effectiveness of the brand, uh, I guess one thing that confused me was uh, the Bora Ultra WTO and the Bora WTO difference uh, because they both sound fairly ultra in their <laughs> in their ways. So. Uh, but yeah, basically, it, the Ultra is the higher end version, uh, and it comes with a better ceramic bearing. So it's the Cult version versus the uh, is it the USB ceramic bearing. Uh, it has a higher end finish, uh, which is mainly down to the the way it's molded, uh, and then the lighter weight rim construction as well. Again, due to the mold, so probably using some higher compaction technology involved in the rim. Uh, so the rim is different. Uh, it also hides the nipples in the Ultra version, and there is one set of three spokes fewer. So uh, seven 
times three versus eight times three spoke layout. So yeah, there you go. If you're wondering ultra versus regular Bora WTO, that's the difference. All right, let's let's uh, let's stick with the wheel theme for a minute here. Uh, maybe move down the price range quite a bit. Um, so we've got some new aero road wheels from Hunt. Uh, Ronan, you want to run through these? Because they actually sound yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, uh, they sound pretty cool. They look pretty cool. Also, I have a set uh, that were waiting for me when I got home from my travels. I've opened the box. I've taken the rear wheel out. The front wheel hasn't got out yet because, as I mentioned earlier, I've been a bit unwell, so I haven't been out in the bike yet. But uh, to your point, there's Hunt's new Sub 50 Limitless Aero wheel set. As the name suggests, they're just under 50 millimeters deep, 49.5 mil deep rim. They're pretty wide, just like the original sort of Limitless 48 wheel set that that they replace and that the front rim is 34.2 mil external wide and the rear is 30 mil they're both 23 mil external internal. just under four uh, internal sorry internal yes uh just under 1400 grams for the set optimized for well actually optimized for 28 and 30 mil tires or 28 to 30 mil tires which uh someone want to come back to in a second and it was all going so well. I was loving what I was seeing, loving what I was reading. Um, basically, the the whole the whole idea behind these is that they're improving the aerodynamic efficiency, aerodynamic stability, improving system weight, improving how the tire sits on the rim from the existing Limitless Forty Eight. And the way that they've improved most of those things is by going hookless. Uh, at which point, I think mm. I cried a little bit. <laughs> uh, That's a shame. <laughs> But, um, I mean, they're not the first nor the last, I guess. They are. I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that Hunt historically was somewhat vocal towards wanting hooks on its wheels. So that that is an interesting change. I know it's not their first hookless wheel they've done, but it is an interesting change. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, certainly others have have gone this way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's certainly easier and cheaper to manufacture, but yeah, as as others are claiming, there's potentially some performance benefit in some mm, cases. Well, it was it was in that uh, special episode we had a while back, the pit walk with JP Ballard, that he had said that the only reason for going hookless is to save uh, save save production costs. Uh, for what is worth, here Hunt have said that they have focused on making these wheels the given these wheels the lowest efficiency to weight ratio which is effectively their aerodynamic uh, efficiency to to weight uh, and they've provided some plots and and it seems they do perform well there i haven't as i said i haven't ridden them yet and also the lowest uh, efficiency to depth so yeah they've 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 made them more aerodynamic uh, compared to other wheels that are deeper than the sub 50 sub 50 wheels and part of what Hunt is saying is the benefit of going to hookless is that, and it's actually something that I had noticed with the Limitless 48s because I have a set of those also in that when you put a wider tire on the wider external rim that that those wheels had also, you end up with sort of like a light bulb effect uh, with your 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 tire sort of is, is, is bulbing out and then back in again at the rim and then the rim bulbs out and yeah, especially if you go to something like a thirty or a thirty-two on those old, old uh, wheels or or any wheels with that sort of profile, you end up with that light bulb effect, which presumably isn't all that efficient. 
Um, whereas by going to hookless now, they've sort of improved the tire shape as it sits on the rim. Yeah. Gotcha. A bit more squared to the rim. Yeah, I guess it's just a better, smoother transition. Like I, uh, the the there there's no tires on these wheels yet. I haven't had a chance to to mount tires yet, so uh, I'm sort of waiting to see. Yeah. On that. So I mean, it's probably worth noting. Like Hunt's original Limitless 48 was one of the first true disc brake specific aerodynamic wheels mm. to the market. Like they really did rethink the concept of not needing a brake track, and they went you know ultra wide. Uh, with yeah, and it was a shape that. Uh, seems to have then inspired the likes of like Roval repeat wheels. I guess my I, I reviewed those wheels. I really liked a lot of things about them, but one of the things I didn't like so much was the the weight of the wheels. So how much lighter are these new ones? These I, I don't have a comparison weight because I don't know off the top of my head what the Limitless Forty Eight were, but these wheels claimed weight for the new Sub Fifty with UD carbon spokes is thirteen hundred eighty grams. Claimed weight with steel spokes is fourteen. Uh, and and the old 48s, they had that sort of, is it like a polymer internal or a foam internal or something? Yeah, I, yeah. yeah they had a patent um, that. that. That was mentioned in the press release. I, I, I have to confirm if that's been completely removed or, or what the, but but in the press release, it was mentioned that, you know, for for all the positives of the, the, the of that previous design, the, some of the pros that they had worked with had commented on the weight and when they were accelerating repeatedly throughout stages and that that uh, they wanted something lighter. Um, so, yeah, I need, I need to delve into that press release again. I need to speak to Hunt just to confirm if that uh, liner or whatever it is has, has been removed, which I think it has. And yeah, I didn't see any mention someone. of that foam. But yeah, the, they, they had a painting on that, which was basically, it was just a foam, uh, a bit of like almost shape shaping foam uh around the the top of the rim so if you imagine how where the brake track is they're basically using foam instead of carbon fiber to build out the width uh in a sense and then they'll put like a really really thin almost cosmetic layer of carbon fiber over the top of that but it was it was basically just yeah a way to achieve the width without as much material up there yeah, because when you have that sort of hollow carbon fiber construction you have such a big disparity between the inner width and the outer width you have to you want to fill in that space at the beads somewhere because you can't really just have that thin wall structure there and expect it to hold up structurally under pressure um so yeah i i don't remember if they are still using that it was it was a pretty cool technology so i'd be surprised if they weren't using that given that the you know each of those uh hookless beads on the front wheel at least anyway which is a fair bit wider than the rear uh it's like four or five mils thick um which I mean, it's it's not unheard of to have a, a that thick of a carbon bead. I mean, mountain bike rims do that all the time. Um, but if they're trying to make it light, then they may have used foam in there to some extent. Um, but yeah, either way, Dave, as you mentioned, it is pretty intriguing that, you know, I think you and I, I well, I think maybe all three of us now have ridden those Roval Rapides. And it, I haven't. Okay. Uh, it was a ripping fast wheel and it's... It definitely noticeable how much wider the front rim is than the tire. Um, and I mean, they, they certainly felt tangibly faster than a lot of the other stuff that's out there. And, um, Ronan, I know you haven't ridden these yet. Uh, I only got one ride on these on the, on the set that I had just for a couple of days here in Boulder. Uh, couldn't really tell too much about, you know, how, how fast they were, but it was a day in, in kind of 
early winter where uh, around here in Boulder, it's pretty renowned for having some pretty wicked winds coming out of the West. And uh, we had like 40, 45 mile an hour gusts on that one day that I had to ride these things. And heading north uh, on one of the main road, rides, road routes out of town, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it was fun exactly, but I certainly did notice how I wasn't uh, getting blown off the side of the road as I was expecting to. So despite these being 50 mils deep, they actually were surprisingly pretty well manageable in that kind of crosswind, which I found quite impressive. Uh, well, I mean, podcasting isn't a great medium for trying to uh, paint a picture or show a picture, so I'm not even going to try it. But for, for anybody who can hop on to either Hunt's website or Escape Collective when we eventually get a review of these wheel sets up and you look at the the rim profiles of the front versus the rear, you can see on the front, you know, Hunt have gone for that really, really wide external sort of U-shaped uh, design. But then, and going back to the, the sort of light weighting that we discussed there earlier, the one thing that Hunt did mention in reference to that is actually what they've done at the on the rear rim, which obviously wouldn't impact stability because it's out back. You, you, yeah, you don't have any steering there. So, uh Hunt have it's in the press release that they have minimized the material on the rear without compromising aerodynamics and effectively what that means is they've reduced that external width at the rear it's a bit more I mean it's by no means v-shaped or you know old carbon rim profile design but it's it's nowhere near as as bulbous as as the front rim is and and that's obviously where they've saved a bit of weight also yeah pretty pretty big disparity in shape for sure um mm-hmm. Either way, as we mentioned, Ronan, you've got a pair of these, so hopefully we'll have uh, you'll have time to review those pretty soon. Um, definitely pretty the, eager to see how these are. Yeah, the other thing that I found was interesting was just the optimized for 28 to 30 mil tires. Um, and I know it's a topic we're going to come back to later on the podcast, so perhaps we'll just I'll just mention that now, and then we can come back to it later. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think it's pretty smart for them to, to optimize for that size. Um, as far as pricing goes, I don't think we talked about that yet. Uh, they do start at 1800 US uh, with the steel spokes and regular steel bearings. Uh, and then they go up to just under 2800 US uh, with the uh, carbon spokes and ceramic setup. Pretty good. Those are so- pretty solid numbers. So they'll be out in like February-ish, April or something like that. Um, Limited quantities towards the middle of February, isn't it? Very yep, limited quantities. Yep, yep. And, they and then if you want more availability this- a little bit later. Yeah, the ceramic speed upgrade is not available until April, and then yeah, sort of general release much later, I think. Yeah, so we'll, uh, you know, they'll be they'll be in shops or on their website in you know imminently, I guess. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully, running you'll have your review done before then because I certainly want to hear what you think about them. Uh, what I also want to hear about Ronan is uh, these new Echoi pedals that you stumbled across <laughs> here because they are definitely very different. And at the same time, also kind of revisiting an old idea, which we'll get to in a minute. But what are, what are these here? What are we looking at? Yeah, it's a set of pedals. I didn't spot them, actually. I think you might have said that in the intro. I, it was laycycle.fr. It was uh, Leroy Cedric, the, the uh, editor over the, over that French website, who had spotted these pedals underneath their, or on the bikes of the Nice Metropole Cote d'Azur squad and the Burgos B Hits teams, two continental or pro-continental teams in Europe. Uh, basically, it's a... I'm not sure if it's a prototype or it's a f- 
production ready or whatever, but Ecoy, the French clothing and helmet manufacturer, has a, has a new set of pedals that these teams are testing this year. And they're very, very different looking from Shimano, Lux, Speedplay, any time, any of the other pedals that are currently on the market. And we, we did talk about these on Placeholders podcast this week. Abby and Mickey had described them as taking a piece of paper and tracing the outline of a Shimano pedal uh, and then that outline being just all there is to this new pedal. I have since thought of another way to describe them in that if you imagined a time pedal, like the time pedals that the pro teams are using these days, and just entirely hauled out the center, kind of a little bit like that also in that these... Yeah, there, there's there's very little to the pedal, um, but pre- seemingly much of what's sort of interesting about these the, this new pedal system is actually it requires a proprietary shoe sole also, uh, which Ecoy seemingly are willing to license to other manufacturers. And while we haven't actually seen the soles of these specific shoes that you need to to clip into these pedals, um, what we what we can see is that whatever way that mechanism or cleat system works, it seems to be built into like a recess within the within the sole. And as such, when you clip into the pedal, it seems like the, the pedal is almost going to be hidden beneath like a, in, or inside the sole almost. Uh, and the, the secondary benefit to that, or perhaps the primary benefit to that is actually when you're off the bike walking, it should be much more like off-road shoes and where the, where the tread would normally sort of be taller than the, the cleat and has such a much better traction for walking, it seems like you might have a similar setup with these new Ecoy pedals. I think it's worth mentioning, or maybe just worth clarifying, that <clears throat> conceptually these pedals are not that different from a lot of other stuff out there in the sense that you have sort of like a forward edge of the cleat and a rear edge of the cleat, and they both engage in the ends of the pedal. The difference from what we can tell here is that those two ends are separate pieces that are integrated into the shoe somehow. I mean, I would imagine they're replaceable. So that le- that means the middle of the shoe can be a lot closer to the spindle. Um, and from what we can tell, you know, kind of little bits of information that we have, that seems to be the source of where Ekoi is making some pretty big power efficiency gain claims here. They're saying what, like an eight watt gain based on basically just through power transfer, which seems quite optimistic. Um, yeah, let, let's go with quite optimistic. <laughs> let's just stick with that because we, we don't have information necessarily. We don't know how they came yeah. to that number. We'll just, we'll just give them that for now. Um, I think they're, like, to be clear, Ecoy haven't made any announcement on these pedals. Uh, from what I understand, there's nothing actually official yet. Uh, what the LeCycle.fr report had was some sort of quotes from the CEO of the brand who had said that they acquired the design for these pedals from the original inventor like two years ago. And so far they'd spent two million euro on, on developing it. Um, That's a big hole. Rather, yeah, rather sort of concern. Concerningly, he had also said that you know we don't, we fully expect that we won't be able to compete with Shimano and Luke in that in this space. Which is, I mean, yeah, I, I think had he said anything else, we'd have been sort of ridiculing the idea that they could compete with Shimano and Luke in this space. But 
for him to come out and say that and even go further and say, look, we don't even know if this is going to be a thing or not, uh, paraphrasing him a bit, but he would you would think having spent two million euro on this and now having taken it to the point where there's actually pro teams racing on them that you'd be a little bit more upbeat because presumably at some point you kind of want to try and sell some of these to claw back some of your... Yeah, you know, at, maybe it's yeah. an under-promise, over-deliver sort of thing. At a, yeah, at a which, would, which would be refreshing. R&D, that's... Uh, yeah, Pretty you're well, have, you're gonna have to, uh You're going to have to peddle quite a few of those to make that investment back. Oh. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, but I mean, but in the grand scheme of things, to develop something like that, I mean, I mean, yeah, two million euros is a lot of money. Um, mm. but it also seems like it's not as much money as I maybe would have expected given everything that has to go into them. So mm. yeah, we'll find out soon enough. And and I mean Ecoy not not the biggest brand in the world, but yeah. they they've they're on they're they're well represented in the professional ranks. Uh they do some exciting things. They've done things like heated gloves and heated insoles and that in the past. So um by no means scared of of uh developing new products. But just going back to that the the claims that that were sort of mentioned around these pedals and the the code name so far for these pedals is P eight PW eight yeah so pedal and then the W stands for what and apparently there's an eight watt gain and the eight stands for eight millimeter which is the diameter of the axle uh, and yeah maybe these this eight watt gain comes from power transfer gains I don't know I maybe it comes from aero gains which was my initial sort of guess if I was to guess again I'd say maybe it's a combination of both mm-hmm. um, but yeah who knows, who knows? Um, I, I do think you know I haven't spoke to someone who has actually ridden on these pedals they had a very glowing review of them they're light stuff very adjustable huge generally platform. a good design yeah yeah, yeah. I think Fundamentally, what needs to be considered though is if a proprietary shoe design is required, then one shoe brand yeah. is not going to be enough to make this a success. It's going to need the buy-in of shoes that many people are buying, and that is a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Uh, if you look at well, Speedplay I mean, and its four cleat design, uh, four bolt design, not many adopters for that. Despite Speedplay becoming a, a prominent brand at one point, and you know, continue to do so, but yeah, there it was pretty niche shoemakers that were offering native shoes for that. And having having used Northways with a four bolt adapter, I can tell you it transforms like how like I'm a Speedplay fan anyway. Yeah. But using that adapter makes them even so much better again in terms of adjustment and the ease of setup and and all that. So that was actually something truly beneficial and didn't really get all that much adoption. Mm. How 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 likely are the major shoe manufacturers to adopt a sort of secondary what well, it, it sounds like it would require a whole new sole not just a new bolt arrangement yeah so it's oh, a yeah, whole new I'm, shoe yeah um, mm-hmm. so i mean yeah, ultimate, that's the barrier i mean ultimately i think what's going to be the deciding factor is if these pedals really do offer that much of a performance benefit that that will prompt companies to jump into the fray to offer something compatible um you know, like with the speed play thing, they were light and adjustable and stuff like that. But like they weren't like head and shoulders above other pedal systems. Um, if something like this really did offer like a substantial, like, you know, true leap forward in terms of what is currently out there, then I could see maybe they might be some might be successful. But 
they'd have to be really, really good. So I don't know. Ronan, hopefully maybe we can get you on a set. Maybe we should try we mm. can try and try and like, you know, I, see what we I can do. I did reach out to an eternal contact that I have at Ekoi, uh who couldn't comment at the moment. So um yeah, not sure. You're gonna have to just steal one of those bikes, running and some and some and a matching pair of shoes in size forty five. Yeah. How do you know my shoe size? Because you told me. <laughs> Uh, if, because, if you're wanting, we've been discussing to, shoe size. We were just talking about shoe sizes from. the other day. So I, that was a joke. Uh, if you're wanting to steal pedals from a team bike uh, and run away as quick as possible, an impact wrench. Nothing is quicker taking pedals off. Dave, speaking of tools, we are finally to your most hotly anticipated segment of the show here. What is this thing in the show notes about tool world news? What rabbit hole are you sending us down here? Uh, so this is pretty cool. But uh, for anyone that has followed my Instagram will probably know that I was a fan of Noble Wheels tools out of uh, out of London. They make some really nice brass tools, so like a wheel lacing jig. They made some really fantastic bearing extractors that worked like nothing else. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they kind of just s- decided to cease production, sell off all their manufacturing uh, lathes and everything, and and go do something unrelated to bikes. Uh, and that was a bummer because their bearing tools were pretty groundbreaking dare i say the benchmark uh and now i can say the brand is coming back uh but not as you may expect uh abby bike tools has acquired the entire catalog of intellectual property and plans to start production in april on the wheel lacing jig and the bearing extractors uh and as yeah, as space in the production line allows and as demand increases, they might take on some of the other designs that they've acquired. Whoa, that is actually pretty big news in the tool mm. world. I, now I understand why that was capital T, capital W, capital N. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, Will, podcast editor, move this straight up to the top. Just straight up, you know, just first first bit of news of the day there you go just just, just yeah. cut out everything it's, else nothing it's else bigger it's point. bigger than colnago it's bigger than campagnolo it's bigger than a revolutionary new pedal design <laughs> this, this is huge <laughs> Last week, we uh, mentioned Adam Kieran, Zero Friction Cycling, testing candle wax. Uh, he, of course, anytime we mention him, he sends us uh, four to 5,000 word emails. Uh, so we got that. And it was to clarify that the candle wax he tested wasn't melted like pre-made store-bought candles. He went to a candle-making wholesaler and bought, uh, I guess, the raw mix. And in his testing, found out that the wholesaler he's dealing with is actually selling some very high-end uh, premix, so it had a very high paraffin count, and therefore it tested a lot better than he had ever expected it to. Uh, so yeah, I think he, I guess he just wanted to to note that yeah, melting like a, a scented candle is probably going to test noticeably worse because that would have a higher mineral oil content and perfumes and other things in it uh but yeah he said it seems that if you can find a, a high-end premix then it, it's going to test pretty well definitely not nearly as well as the the stuff from like molten speed wax silka that sort of stuff but uh but yeah hmm. he said it did still perform better than he had expected so a little bit of clarity I, on that one. yeah i i'd, I'd I'm wondering if he's going to check earwax next if that could be <laughs> I know it's been suggested to him uh you um <laughs> and also just on adam kieran i i i don't think we mentioned he actually uh 
he had given Escape Collective a special award in his uh, end of year YouTube channel awards show uh, to tail end of last year. So I think on behalf of Escape Collective, uh, I'll just will we will we thank him for that? Yeah, generous award. Thanks, Adam. All right, uh, Ron, new Vittoria Corsa Pro Speed. What's going on here? Uh, yeah, that's literally news just in, breaking news, uh, bursting into my inbox <laughs> mid-recording here, uh, is that Vittoria have updated their the Corsa Pro Speed, the time trial and triathlon specific tyre. Uh, the new tyre seamlessly, I'm going to just read this straight out of the email because I haven't really had time to, to learn <laughs> it off yet, but uh, seamlessly tapering the tread into the sidewall, the Corsa Pro Speed construction combines the graphene and silica compound, supple cotton casing and updated tread pattern, all electrically cured mm. to minimise rolling resistance. Apparently... Uh, there's a rolling resistance savings of around about 5% uh, with a 2% reduction in weight. Mm. Keen to see this one hit the the tire testers rolling resistance. Uh, yeah, see how it stacks up. Yes. Um, I mean, popular tire certainly amongst testers and, and triathletes. So uh, yeah. I think a lot of people have been awaiting the updated version of that since we got the new courses last year. Yep. Uh, so good to see it's finally landed. Cool. All right. Uh, also in the news, uh, Bossy, which is uh, actually a Sydney brand that sort of specialize in uh, titanium frames. Uh, they've got a new gravel bike, the Grit SS. Uh, and it's very similar to a bike I'd previously reviewed, which is the Strata SS, which was a basically a, a full aero titanium bike. And it was probably the first of its kind to have uh, really wildly like carbon-like shapes, fully integrated cockpit, but in titanium. A very cool bike. Anyway, they've gone and done it. Very similar story in gravel. And yeah, it's the the big story there is that they have like a die cast head tube lug to give it the shape, uh, 3D printed dropouts, other 3D printed parts, a very high end frame. Um, obviously with such technology, it's it's only production sizing. So there's no, no full custom options here, but uh, yeah, it, it's got UDH on the back. It looks very, very modern. It's got plenty of tire clearance. So Certainly uh, an interesting bike. Well, 700 by 50 tire clearance, uh, regular seat post, uh, regular round seat post, but yeah, integrated cockpit up front. So an interesting bike. Um, it's not cheap. You're looking at nearly 7,000 Australian dollars for a full frame set, but uh, still it's oh, pretty it's different. 100 pound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, What's the brand name again? Bossy, B-O-S-S-I. And yeah, I had no previously reviewed their road bike. Puns from you it's based cool. on the brand name or no? No, I'm good. Moving on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, last on the list is uh, Orange. Uh, yeah, UK-based mountain bike brand. Real iconic mountain bike brand. Um, been doing full suspension single pivot frames for uh, as long as I've been alive. And uh, yeah, they are trading again. New owner. And they've uh, somehow managed to acquire their local manufacturer as well. So they now have, yeah, manufacturer and, and the brand in, in one house. And seems like they're back and, and bigger than ever. So that is pretty cool having only covered the news of them uh, basically filing for bankruptcy just a few weeks back. So good change of events there. Yeah, you- nice to see a iconic brand return. Yourself and James covered that news in, in a podcast episode a couple of weeks back. I had listened to that 
as I uh, rode along the Swan River in Perth on a on a hybrid bike, mm. uh, and it it sort of yeah it was a, it was a sad one for me to hear because actually I have a lot to thank Orange for for getting me into this sport, and that the first proper bike I had was an Orange C sixteen R that Mister Claus kindly delivered one Christmas, wow. um, and that bike was. I mean, I, this is a long time ago. I don't remember much about it, but it was sort of uh, so you just knew to look at it. It was a special bike. It stood out that I think that sort of kickstarted my affinity for uh, even fancier bikes and, uh, yeah, led me down the track that I'm now on. What, so, what type of bike um, was that? What's the C16? Well, C16, it was a 26-inch mountain bike of some sort. Oh, my, uh, you started as a mountain biker, yeah. aren't you? Dave, what you may not realize is I have a podium in the Irish Mountain Bike Marathon National Championships to my name. You're so, right. I didn't uh, realize that. So you're you're an OG <laughs> gravel racer is what you're telling me. <laughs> there, I, I don't recall if there was any more than three riders in the race and I finished third, but nice. <laughs> that happened. Nice. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a Pepsi bike before that, so perhaps that's uh, Pepsi is where I need to. But yeah. I, th- I think it was the orange. Okay. That did it. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So some happy news there. Uh, all right. All right. Let's. Uh, we're running a little long here, so we're just going to go ahead and move along here. Uh, let's do a little on your mind segment here because we haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, I dare say this topic is going to be over the head of our families. Uh, I posted something on my personal Instagram account the other day about how almost kind of joking that, you know, 32s are the new 28s in terms of tire size. Uh, and it sparked quite a bit of conversation that was pretty intriguing. So we've had this steady increase in tire sizes over the last few years on the road. Uh, but it kind of feels to me like we're maybe finally getting to some, some level of stability, uh, again, at least on the road, uh, with 28s primarily the favorite size for kind of faster, faster racing and smoother applications and maybe like 30, 32s for more all-purpose road riding. Um, it doesn't, I don't really see that things are going to get much bigger than that. What do we think here? Yeah, it does seem to be slowing down for sure. Uh, I would say if anything, it's, uh, if you look at pro racing, I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, everyone's kind of stopped on printed 28 mil tires. Some are putting those on pretty plump rims. So like UAE, uh, measuring out to about 31, I think Ronan. Uh, but 32. yeah. 32 there you go uh but yeah i think yeah as far as actual printed widths i think it's it seems to stabilize there um i'm keen to hear from ronan on this one from a performance point of view uh yeah i think i I, i'm not sure i'm not sure we've hit the top yet and i wouldn't be confident in saying we're that we're not going to see tires go wider but i do agree that we've sort of stabilized for the moment and that's uh, optimizing around 28 seems to be every new wheel set, every new bike, every new tire, everything you hear about from manufacturers is we've optimized this round of 28, um, which is why when I seen the hunts today and it's 28 to 30, I had initially thought, hmm, what's the internal uh, rim width here? Is it going to be 25 or something? And then optimizing for the 30 end of it would have been yeah, I'm not getting into the ISO thing again, uh, but or ETRTO thing again. But um, so it, that was interesting. I thought that Hunt had done 28 and 30, and then I sat in and another product launched earlier today, which is under embargo, so I can't mention right now. But the uh, I sort of 
off-the-cuff remark from that meeting was that the teams who had moved to 32 for even something like Roubaix have moved back down to 30s. Hmm. So it seems like, yeah, uh, 30 is now, you know, the the wider option the teams will go for for Roubaix and 28 is the, is the everyday sort of selection. The one, the one sort of caveat to all that, I think we are going to see the return of narrower tires also, if, if both those statements can be true, and that I, I'm not going to say any any manufacturers are playing games or anything or, or, or sort of rigging the results, but if you stick a narrower profile tire up front and put your bike in the wind tunnel, you're going to get a faster test uh, or you're going to get a better result. Uh, and, I mean, if it's faster, it's faster, so it's not as if that's cheating. Um but yeah, we 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 could well see some, especially on front rims, narrower tires returning also. Yeah, I mean that's not surprising if you think about the the aerodynamic world and especially the wheel the wheel world. There, uh, it's kind of a game of marketing chess, in a sense, right? Like they all became very similar in aerodynamic shape and chess and, or and snakes and ladders snakes and ladders <laughs> i guess yeah uh but yeah i mean i'm going to use zip as an example here for a long time their their whole thing was aerodynamic advantage and they they you know used to sell themselves on being the fastest wheel and then they had you know their rim shapes were copied and and they lost that advantage in that you know they they then couldn't honestly say like you know our wheels are significantly faster than the next so then they started telling a different story of rolling resistance and low weight uh and it's sort of i think those those moves are just going to keep going around in circles uh as as developments are made uh so you know if there's Mm. if there's no way to make a wider wheel faster than an existing wide wheel then i agree with you and i think we'll we'll see the i mean i mean part of the part of the difficulty is in that going wider you're going to get a drop in rolling resistance and Mm -hmm. that's obviously the gain there but you are increasing the frontal area Mm -hmm. of you know wider tire and wider rim you you might be able to extend the depth of the rim to claw back some of those that arrow penalty from from increasing the the a you sort of improve the cd while you increase the A and you end up in the same place. But at some point for road riding, you got to think that the the rolling resistance gains from going wider and wider and wider don't make up for the loss in terms of aero drag. Um, yeah, because it's all unle- about unless right? we Yeah, un- unless we're willing to go back to ever deeper, like 60, 70, 80, 90 mil rims, which I think brands are more and more moving away from. Well, what I find pretty intriguing about all this conversation is a couple of things is, well, I guess mainly that it, I, I see sort of a revisiting of a couple of older trends, you know, one from not too many years ago and another from quite a long time ago, because, you know, with the predominant size, printed size, at least on the road for, for racing and high performance road riding being like 28, 29-ish. Um, I mean, I started road riding right as, 27 inch wheels were being phased out. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before that the, you know, the shop where I got my first road bike was probably pretty happy to dump off what presumably was their last 27 inch road bike ever. Um, and you know, back then the common tire size for just general road riding was 27 by inch and a quarter, which works out to about 32 millimeter. And if you wanted something a little bit lighter, you went with 27 by inch and an eighth, which is about almost 29 millimeters. So, uh, you know, this is what 
30-ish years, 35 years ago or something like that. So uh, it's I just find it very intriguing that it's taken that long for tire sizes to kind of come around full circle to what was pretty much the norm back then. And before things started getting really narrow as everything focused on weight. Uh, and then the other trend that I see kind of coming back is... I don't know if you remember when Continental had that force and attack front and rear tire combo, um, which I, mm-hmm. I always liked the concept of that. I mean, yeah. it, it unfortunately never really caught on in the market, but you yeah. know what they did there. And for was memory, it used... wasn't quite as well executed as like the GP3000 or whatever they were selling at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like the sort of thing where they maybe just didn't vo- devote as much attention to it as they could have. Yeah. But essentially, maybe, yeah. But so it was, it was a narrower front tire with... Uh, a thinner tread cap and kind of like a lighter weight casing and softer rubber. And then they used a bigger, like bigger and wider rear tire with harder rubber. Uh, I, I think I think the casing was a little bit more durable. I think that had a little bit more puncture protection with the idea that, you know, your front and rear road tires do different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is less of an aero penalty going with a bigger air volume in the back and certainly more of a comfort benefit. Uh, and durability benefit for sure. And up front, by keeping the tire casing narrower, you had less of an aerodynamic impact. But if you had soft rubber, you still had good grip. But because there wasn't as much load on it, you still kind of balanced the durability and wear. Like it, it made a lot of sense. And I kind of wonder if that might come back at some point. It's very cool. I think back then, the, the idea of a bigger rear tire was just that you could fit in more pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more. <laughs> Pump it up harder. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, as we talked about with it, not we're kind of stuck for time to not to go into it, but as we talked about with the sub 50 hunt wheels, there the the variable profiles front to rear, you'd think that there's space there for a manufacturer to bring back front and rear specific road tires. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly am a little bit surprised that who knows, maybe they did, maybe Hunt tried to partner with a tire company for a, a sort of like a, a matched optimized tire set for that. Um, could d- could could you imagine if you had front and rear specific tires and there were oh also hookless and hooked specific versions oh of the front and rear? Tires? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yes, I could imagine that. And God, I hope we never see something like that. Mm-hmm. I put my <laughs> bite, I put bite my your front tongue, hook running, tire on my rear hookless you, rim. You are giving people ideas that they shouldn't have. Anyway, <laughs> um, but but back to your point, James is. 32 being the new 28, I'd push back on that a little bit and say for where I am in Sydney, like there's there's not really any real option for like going and doing dirt roads or gravel like within Sydney. Like people do pure road here. And my personal feeling is that like 28 to 30 mil tires is sort of like the upper limit. Well, 30 mil is the upper limit of what I want. 28 is generally what I ride on a slightly wider rim. And that is all the tire I want. And I go to a 32 and I... I actually feel the weight and I feel a little bit more sluggish and I don't like how it changes the handling of the bike. It slows down the handling of the bike too much for me. Um, And I actually still prefer that slightly narrower, more performance edge. But if I were in Boulder where you have a lot of roads that turn into dirt as an alternative route, uh, I think 32 makes a huge amount of sense because it it just increases the versatility of your bike. So again, I think this is a, a regional debate rather than a what's truly oh, yeah. the one for, for all. sure but but either way it does seem like the window of common tire sizes is yeah seemingly stabilizing which is yes. honestly nice to see especially since you know bikes have to be designed around these different tire sizes and stuff uh i i think 
I, I think I can speak for all of us in saying that it is. It, it would be nice to have a little bit of stability, at least for a little while. Like mm-hmm. let's just, let's just keep things mellow for a little bit. I am going to both tease the forthcoming JP Ballard podcast episode that's that uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, and also add more confusion to this. With I think a lot of people will refer back to the rule of one hundred and five when they're selecting their tire width, and JP in that episode thoroughly poo-pooed the idea of the rule of 105 actually being relevant at all um so perhaps you will have more freedom to select whatever tire width you want for whatever mm. you're running mm. or well, at least tell yourself you have that sounds like an episode not to miss no, not to miss well let's go ahead and wrap up here because i think we're Definitely going deep into the time here. Uh, yeah, don't forget to sign up for Dave's Tools and Workshop Newsletter threaded and also for Ronan's Performance Process Podcast, which the next ones sound like definitely pretty good ones to, to, to not miss. Uh, I've also got a members-only Ask a Wrench episode of Geek Warning that just went up earlier this week, so make sure you don't miss that. Uh, and again, if you're a fan of the cobbled classics like the Tour Flanders and Paris-Roubaix, look into our member summit because it sounds like it's shaping up to be quite the event. Uh, finally, let's not forget that Escape Collective is an entirely member-funded publication, which that, you know, that means that it is your money that pays for all the amazing written and audio content we produce for you. Uh, also pays for our salaries, I should mention. So if you like what you've heard today and you maybe read something on the site that really resonated with you, you know, quit sitting on your hands and go become a member already. So head over to escapecollective.com slash join and select the monthly or annual option. Or at the very, very, very least, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and Don't review. say it. Don't say it. I'm sick of us asking people to give us a five-star rating and them not doing it. I looked at how many ratings we have and there's like 30 ratings there. And oh, we no, have, you're, looking at, you're looking at the regional one. I mean, at least on the, on the US one, we've got like 180 something. I mean, still, when you compare that to how many people are listening to this podcast, I can almost guarantee you, if you're hearing this, you are not doing the decent thing and going over and giving us a five I, I can rating, tell you, so. I've listened to James say that every single episode and I still haven't gone and given a rating. <laughs> God. <laughs> so I, guess, just, I guess I need yeah. to make a com- more convincing argument. All right, I, I'll work on that, Ronan. I'll work on that. No, I, I think our listeners need to work on carrying through on, on the single thing that we ask. The one thing. The one, the one thing. thing. Yeah, let's start I mean, asking Besides one thing. being a member. Yeah. <laughs> Future right, well, one thing. Let, let's see, what, we, let's see what, the, what the review counter looks like a few days after this episode airs. So come on, come on folks, do, do us a solid, will you? all right james i'll go leave a review (laughs) all right well anyway thanks as always for listening and we'll see you again next week for another episode of geek warning cheers